So call to worship. Looks like we've got, I don't think we have any strange faces other than mine. So the other day I was eating lunch in my truck. Yeah, that's because I'm on a job site. I don't just go home and eat lunch in my truck. And uh, <laughs> just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> so while I was, <laughs> well, Mary Ellen probably said, yeah, he does. <laughs> Yeah. So while I was eating my lunch, I was watching the swallows catching their lunch. If you ever watch swallows fly, you are aware of how quickly they can change direction and elevation while in flight. I have always been amazed at how effortless it seems for them to fly as they do. So I decided to do just a little research on them and their acrobatic flying. It turns out that the best jet pilots can't compete with cliff swallows. The way these birds swoop up and over bridges and buildings or skim over the surface of water, dodging each other using acceleration that would knock the best Air Force pilot out cold. You see swallows pull very hard turns to escape a foe or to catch that bug seen in the corner of their eye. There have been extreme cases of a swallow pulling 7.8 Gs. Fighter pilots usually pass out at 5 or 6 Gs. Now I know there's some folks here that that are big uh, pilot uh, followers or maybe know people in the Air Force and they're going to, no they don't, they don't pass out at 5 or 6. Well they have pressure suits, they have specialized training so that they learn how to cope with the higher G's that they experience. Most of you know what pulling G's means, but for those of you, of you who don't, let's look at a snippet of what gravitational force is. A G means the force of gravity. Let's look at someone that weighs 100 pounds. If they were to experience four G's, they would weigh 400 pounds. As we live our daily lives, walking, sitting, standing, and lying down, we are experiencing one G. If you were to have a force of four Gs, you will begin to lose color vision. This is called graying out. Four and a half Gs, you might lose vision completely. Higher Gs, and your lungs start to collapse. Your esophagus stretches your stomach drops, and blood will pool in your legs. The human body isn't really designed to take this. If you were to to experience 9 Gs, your 10-pound head would weigh 90 pounds. The blood that is pooling in your legs would resist your heart's attempt to pump it back to your brain, and eventually you would black out. This is called... And for Brian and Dan, this is called Glock. It's not the Glock that they refer to. It is gravity-induced loss of consciousness. So what about these little birds and their ability to fly the way they do in such an extreme way without a care? Oh, and by the way, what does this have to do with the call to worship? In the current time in which we live, It is very easy to become overwhelmed with the godlessness 
of our culture and man's design for the world around us. Yet we are told to not be anxious. In the verses we are going to look at, pay attention to how many times we are told to not be anxious. And think about these little birds and God's design for them and for us. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 25 through 34. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We are encouraged to seek God first, not the things of this world through efforts of our own. He knows our daily needs and will provide for our needs and necessities as he sees fit. We must simply trust him. We are to develop a right perspective to direct our thoughts from worldly natural thinking to godly thinking. This is when we will trust him to fulfill his promise to provide for our needs. After all, he is able to supply far more than we can imagine. We are called to worship, to give thanks, to trust through faith in our Heavenly Father. And yet, even that faith is not of our own. Even that faith is given us by God. And as that faith grows through that godly thinking, seeking Him, He will also supply more of that faith than we can imagine. Maybe the next time you see swallows swooping, diving, and turning, it will cause you to turn to God and seek him first, full of trust in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for drawing us to yourself, Lord, 
for giving us your word, for planting faith inside of us. Help us, Lord, to turn to you in all things, to put you first, to seek you first. Help us be obedient in a desire to live godly lives with your direction in all things, Lord. Thank you for your provision, and thank you for your Son, our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Mike, I'm not that I need that, but uh, just in case. Last Sunday I was preaching in Butte Falls, Oregon, and uh, my wife was kind of laughing because I get excited when I'm preaching. Well, I, I get excited when I get up in the morning, so... <laughs> You know, one time I, when I was pastoring in, uh, after we left here and we were at Tamal Community Church, I went through uh, uh, Dutch Brothers and I, and I got some kind of blue drink. I didn't know what it was. I, I said to the girl, just surprise me, it sounds good. And I got there and my youth pastor said, that's an energy drink. You're one person that doesn't need something like that. So I'm not sure what he was trying to say, but... I guess I should have organized my notes before I came up here. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning. So if you can find that passage of Scripture in your Bibles. <clears throat> Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a treat to be here with these folks. It's uh, We have so many sweet and wonderful memories of the ministry here in Pacific City, uh, living in this area for 19 years, pastoring here for 15, and, and uh, there's a lot of stories that could be told. But the greatest story of all is what you've revealed to us from your word, and we would just pray now that you would take your word, speak to our hearts with great authority, minister to us and encourage us, Lord, and, and you know the needs of each heart, Lord. I pray that you would uh, I know your Holy Spirit will be mindful of that as I deliver your word this morning. Thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm 1 Kings chapter 19, I want to give you a little bit of background kind of leading into this. I take it this water is for me. We just did water. <clears throat> Always glad when it... Well, never mind. Okay. So you have to kind of have some background to 1 Kings chapter 19 in order for it to make sense. So let me kind of run you into this. Some of you may be familiar, some of you not. And actually, I would encourage you, um, go back and read through uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, 19. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really amazing story of what God is doing. But in a nutshell, you need to have this background. <clears throat> the background is this, that... Um, Ahab is king of Israel, Asa is king in Judah, the nation is divided, and, um, and Ahab is an evil king. In fact, the Bible says about Ahab uh, that he was more wicked than any other king or more evil than any other king before him. So um, sometimes we think politicians are bad where we're at, you know. So that's the background. And, and into this, onto the scene, and he'd been there for a while, but really steps into the scene is the prophet Elijah in, in chapter 17, and God tells Elijah that he's going to have a judgment on the nation of Israel uh, because of their worshiping false gods. And so he says to them, Elijah, go tell Ahab that it's not going to rain uh, until you say so, or do. So just from this moment on, it's dry, and so it was, and we know that goes for at least a three-year period of time. Well, Elijah delivers that message, and then God sends him off, probably for his own protection, 
And the Bible tells us that uh, Elijah's uh, living by this little creek, this little brook, and ravens are bringing him meat and bread. And just, I just want you to imagine, you know, we're having the swallows or whatever. You know, ravens don't hand out food, you know. I was watching one day at McDonald's down in Lincoln City, and somebody had, had uh, dropped part of a Big Mac or something, you know. And that's pretty healthy food to be dropping. But anyway, the birds were just going after it. They were not, but they weren't bringing it to me in the car, and I wouldn't have wanted it anyway, okay. So... <laughs> It's just a miracle of God. It just doesn't work that way, right? And so, but, but God chose to provide for Elijah by, Rah- by ravens bringing him bread and food. And, of course, he had the water by the brook, which eventually ran dry. And then he went and uh, went to live at a widow's house. And actually, the way he found her was he's out there kind of on the highways and byways, and she's gathering sticks up. And she says, hey, lady, get me some water. Now, that seems a strange greeting, you know, get me some water, lady. Or I said in the first service that it had been Carmen. She just said, you go get it yourself, you know. So, but he says that, and actually the lady responds, and he says, and, and by the way, while you're headed out there, I'd like you to bring me some bread. Bake some bread for me, too. And, and so she says, it's, it's in this passage, you can read it. You don't understand, sir. I have just enough flour and oil for one more meal and that's why I'm gathering these sticks. I'm going to make that last meal, my son and I, and then we're going to die because there's, you know, we're out. We're out of flour. And, and he said, well, just go ahead and make it anyway. Make mine first, you know. And, and, he's, and it's, it's right there in the passage. And he says, but I want to tell you something. That bowl is not going to run out of flour, and that jar will not run out of oil until God sends rain to the earth. And that's exactly the way it is. And so he's living at this gal's house up on top there and the prophet's chamber. And, and in the story, that her son dies. And you know what Christians are like. When bad things happen, they never blame God or God's messenger, right? Not true, right? So she gets mad at Elijah. says, you come into the house and you do this. She forgets the fact that they've been living for months and months and months off of the bread and, and, or the flour and oil. And, uh, but Elijah, actually God uses Elijah to bring this boy back to life and present it back. And so just an amazing thing. And then, and then in chapter 18, God says, now it's time to go show yourself to Ahab, and I'm going to send rain back to the earth. And Elijah goes in and he says, okay, here's the deal. I want all the prophets of Baal, and actually the prophets of Asherah came too, so there's like 950 of them all together. I want you to meet me on Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal are going to, we're going to bring uh, two steers, you know, and we're going to butcher them, and we're going to call upon, you call on your God, I'll call on my God, and the God that answers from fire in heaven, remember the story? Then he's God. And the Bible's so interesting because the people of Israel do not respond. Their response is silence. Not like, yeah, let's do that, you know. But eventually they say, well, that sounds like a good idea, you know. But, it's, but when, when God does bring fire from heaven, then they're all, yeah, we're on the Lord's side. You know, it's a pragmatic faith, right? God, if you work the way we want you to work, then I'll believe in you. And so this happens. The prophets of Baal all day long, they've been cutting themselves, and they're doing their little Baal dance. You don't know what that looks like, you know. And uh, they're, they're trying to get their God to answer. There's no response at all. And then Elijah prepares the altar of the Lord. He uses ten stones. He pours gallons and gallons of water on top of the sacrifice, wets the wood, puts a trench around it, fills the trench filled with water, and then he calls upon God 
to bring fire down from heaven and show yourself that you are God and that I am your prophet. And boom, fire comes down from heaven and consumes everything. The water, the wood, the sacrifice, the rocks, and licks up all, that scripture even says, it licks up the water in the trenches. So, I mean, that's just amazing. So that's the background to this passage. So we're on a high. Things are going great. It's like the ministry of Pacific Coast Bible Church. You have to have two services to hold all the people because Pastor Dan's preaching is so amazing. Now, now he knows that's not true, and I know that's not true, right? But he does feed you the Word of God, right? And that's pretty important. So we're in chapter 19. That gives you the background. The title of the message is, Are You Running From or Running Towards? 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And by the way, I forgot to mention one little detail. Jezebel had killed all the prophets of God that she could get a hold of. When Elijah was done making the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, he kills all the prophets of Baal. He has them slaughtered. So mass killing of guys. You know, I know people go, I mean, God, why would God do that? I just have to say, God is a holy God. We should be glad we even got to show up here this morning. You know, he could have said, nah, nah that's it. I mean, back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? He could have said, nah, end of story. That's it. He's gracious and merciful all the time. And so, so anyway, that's the background. Verse 1, now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to, messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. But Elijah said, lady, if you think the prophet who called fire down from heaven is going to run from a skirt... You got another thing coming. I don't know if she wore skirts, by the way. I don't know that. Okay. Is that how Elijah responds? Well, let's see. Verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So he left the nation and he left his servant there. Please note that Elijah isolates himself and probably not for a season of prayer, probably not for the protection of his servant. Um, and, and so my, my thing, and I'll bring this up towards the end of the message, beware when you or any other believer isolates themselves. Go after people that do that. You just, just don't do that. Don't, don't stop attending church. You know, be around with brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Please learn the dangers of self-focus. When the enemy wants us to feel guilty or worthless, he often says, look at you. Look at you. And you know what? It works, doesn't it? I have looked inside of the heart of Mark Kennedy, not the way God has. I don't like what I see. I don't want to be alone on a journey with myself. And, and, and so that's, you know, never trust in your own righteousness. You know, never. That's why Dan didn't say, yeah, there's two services because of me, because he realizes, you know what? You get the message ready. Got to bring the people in, right? Verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him and said, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head bread cakes baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. So he goes back to sleep in verse 7. 
And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So now this angel is identified. This identified as the, as, uh, as, uh, the angel of the Lord, which generally is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ shows up on a scene. I mean, if I'm down, I want Jesus to show up, right? You know? And believe me, he has many times. So verse 8, he arose and he ate, and he went on the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Some amazing stone-baked pizza, right? Forty days, you know? I told first service, I had a... uh, I forget what they're called all of a sudden. Scones over that Amber made yesterday. I think Amber was making them. Everybody in the family was working. But they're not going to last for 40 days, all right? Verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So more self-focus, more isolation, right? You know, we even know from the story Elijah wasn't the only one, right? But all of a sudden, he is. Then, this is the Lord, so so he said to him, verse 11, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. So God issues a direct command. He's not asking him if you want to consider. He's saying, Get out of the cave. You're going to go on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord is passing by, verse 11. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, we read scripture too fast, and so we kind of mess things sometimes, right? We're, this is a good story. We want to get to the end of it, you know, and, and, you know, where Elijah's great, and he pulls himself up from his bootstraps, which you won't do, by the way. God will have to do, you know. But, but this passage is interesting. You have to ask yourself, why in the world did Elijah, the prophet who had called fire down from heaven, know that that wasn't God coming for him? But it was, a, it was a gentle breeze, right? He knew. I mean, he knew that. He, he, I believe because he knew the character and nature of God towards his children. God's so gentle with us. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, when, when God asks Elijah, What are you doing here? It implies that he is not there because... That was God's leading in his life. If God's asking you, what are you doing here? You're actually not in the right place, right? See, you don't, he's not going to say, I mean, because if, if you're where he wants to be, he's going, hey, glad to see you here, you know, but that's not what he says. How many times has God asked you, what are you doing here? <laughs> he's asked me that too many times. You know, here's where I want you to be. What are you doing here? So let's consider where Elijah is at at the moment, though, because it's easy for us to kind of spiritualize things. You know, let's get spiritual. Where is Elijah? The Bible says Elijah is on the mountain of God. 
you know? It's like being in a Southern Baptist church on Sunday morning, right? You know, he's on the mountain of God, you know? What better place to be, right? It's on the mountain of God. I'm going to go back there where God is. Beloved, if God wants you serving him in the valley or in the wilderness, then fleeing even to the mountain of God would put you in the wrong place. That is why I love to say the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, even if it's dangerous. A friend of mine once said, grace is not always a soft place, but grace is always a safe place. That didn't happen in first service. You know, it's interesting, though, pastoring here for 15 years. One Sunday, seven planes took off while I was trying to preach, you know, so... Grace is not always a soft place. Grace is always a safe place. Friends, if God wants you to be in the marketplace, in the public square, in the public school, at the local coffee shop, then don't be hiding in the church building. We're not here today to hide, right? We're here today to be fed from God's word so at the end of the service I can say, go get them, right? Go out there to all the world and make disciples. Don't. Don't hide. Verse 14, then he, this is Elijah said, and, and I want you to notice Elijah has his speech already. He's had at least 40 days to write the speech, to memorize it. He's rehearsed it, he's memorized it. He knows what he's going to say to God. And please note, his speech will not be about what God has done. He will not say, hey God, remember when the ravens brought me that meat? I mean, that was cool, you know. And, the bowl and, and, and her son coming back to life and the fire from heaven. And remember, he doesn't say that. His speech will not be about what God has done. It will be about Elijah, Israel, and Jezebel. Then he said, and this is I, I, Elijah, okay, have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, have torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they, and they, this is Jezebel, right? Seek my life to take it away. But the Lord said to him, Oh, Elijah, I'm so sorry. I was, I was busy, and, and I didn't know you were going through a time of difficulty. You know, I looked the other way because when Elijah was on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, he said, Scream louder. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's taking a nap. He's got to relieve himself. I, you know, and so, so. But God doesn't say that to Elijah, right? He didn't say, I didn't see your dilemma. Friends, do you ever go through anything without God being fully aware? Like COVID happens and God goes, oh, what am I going to do now? You know, he's a sovereign God. He's in complete control. The wonderful thing is it's offensive sometimes because, you know, some hard things come into our lives and we're offended by that because we know that God could have prevented that from happening and this was part of his plan, even in a sin-cursed world, right? Nothing surprises God. He holds all the surprises, right? But, but you have the God that's sovereign enough to bring you into that, and he is strong enough to bring you through it. It's just an amazing God that we have. But God doesn't respond like I was busy. God says, go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So, you know, that's like, God, I'm having a mountaintop, mountaintop experience here. He says, get back to the wilderness. You know, that's what he says to him. 
Go to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel, king of Aram, king over Aram, verse 16, and Jehu, the son of Mishai, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphath of Abel-Mohalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It will come about that the one who escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. 7,000, Elijah. 7,000 that have not, this is just in Israel, not including Judah. 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. That kind of goes away with it. I'm all alone, God, you know? Either Elijah didn't know it, or he had overlooked it. And we know he overlooked part of it, right? Because he left his servant and took off on his own. My question is, does this solve the problem for Elijah? Does it take care of it for him? Well, we will see that he does obey, but let's see if he's still battling. Verse 19. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphath. And while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elisha passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. Please note, Elijah says nothing. Scripture's not like leaving a conversation out. He says absolutely nothing. He throws his cloak over Elisha, and he keeps walking. No, it's good to see you, friend. How you been? How are the folks? Hey, Elisha, would you like to serve the Lord with me? No explanation at all. Elisha knows what it means. I mean, he's, he's, he's been as, trained as a prophet, but Elijah is still battling. He tosses his cloak, Elijah, on Elisha, and without a word, he keeps walking at a fast pace. We know this as we read Scripture. Look how Elisha responds. First, he has to unharness himself from the oxen, right? He's all harnessed up, so he has to get the harness off, and then he has to try to catch up with Elijah. Now, Elijah's a quarter mile away by that time. I mean, he's booking it, you know? So he's still struggling, right? Sometimes we obey the Lord, but we're still battling. Verse 20 says, secondly, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And this is Elijah. Elijah said, go back. For, what have I done? Good grief. You know, just because I'm having my pity party doesn't mean you need to join me with that. So verse 21, he returned from following him. He took a pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh and the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Dear servants of the Lord, here are some things to consider as we reflect on Elijah's battle and on Elijah's running. We should remember that this happened, that's why I gave you the background, after a time of huge victory. Been amazing victory, you know? I mean, how often have I ever preached a message and fire has come down from heaven, you know? Hasn't happened. Actually, I think the fire of the Spirit has moved a number of times, right? Number one, reflection number one, what do we find happens at times after a season of ministry or Christian life victory? Sometimes discouragement sets in. You know, the great things happen, and, and all of a sudden things are not great, and, and things are difficult, and, and we don't see that coming. And I, I, I laugh, I, you know, just, just be in a pastor's house on Sunday evening, you know, and you had the most people that ever attended on Sunday morning show up. 
and one person made a remark to you, and in you, I mean, you know, it's mostly Bonnie brings it up. We're, she's all whining all the time, you know, not, not really. We get discouraged. I mean, God's moved. He's done a wonderful thing. Or that there are times after a great high, we struggle with real lows. We just do. And we're not all, we don't live on the mountain, right? We actually live in the valley. So I often say church building programs are often followed by or include church conflict. Not always. God moves, people complain. Reflection number two. When God does great things, the enemy does not always or even usually pack his bags and go home. Satan doesn't say, oh, well, I lost the battle there. I'm moving on. He doesn't do that. In fact, often he redoubles effort, right? He thinks, if I didn't get to him that way, I'm going to find another way. That's why you better stay in God's word and with God's people in prayer all the time because you are weak and you are feeble and you are unable to battle the enemy. But the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11 says this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I said years ago, when does a lion roar? When he knows the prey is his. Well, that roaring lion ain't going to get you, right? Like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And I tell you, in your, in your Bibles, and I know I didn't give you time to even turn there, it's First Peter chapter 5, 8 through 11, I would underline a little while and eternal glory. Because the battles we go through in life are for a little while. The, the glory is for eternal, eternity. Number three, reflection number three. Was Elijah running from Jezebel or running towards God? There is a difference, right? And I think you pretty much know the answer to that, you know. Was he running from or running towards? And in all my notes here, I lost a page somewhere. I usually just print. I got front page. My printer did front and back to make life exciting for me. It's old dogs. Run, is Elijah running from or running towards? Joseph was fleeing towards God when he ran from Potiphar's wife, wasn't he? And Daniel was standing on his knees before the God of the universe. And the lions were still hungry the next morning. And Elijah, yes, Elijah stood alone on the mountain of God. Alone. I mean, he tries to get the people to be with him, and they're not even with him until God sends the fire. And he says this, O Lord God of Abraham, Israel, Isaac, Israel, today let it be known that you are the God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done these things at your word. And boom, fire came from heaven. Yet now Elijah has found himself running from Jezebel instead of running towards God. Every believer has been in both positions. Every believer has been in the position of running towards God 
and running from a difficulty. Now, we, when we run into difficulty, we're not really thinking we're running from God, you know, but we're not trusting him. God's word encourages us. If in your notes you're taking Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 11, says, be, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In heavenly places, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, stand firm. Sometimes you shouldn't run at all. You should stand. You should stand firm. Reflection number four. Remember the dangers of isolation. Remember and beware of the dangers of isolation. That Really, uh, as a pastor for almost 40 years, one of the things that's grieved my heart the most is when a believer isolates themselves from the family. It's horrible. I have gone after them so many times. It just doesn't work. You can't do that. We desperately need each other. Elijah went from being, uh, from, uh, from being on a journey with God to being on a journey with Elijah. And that is a depressing thought. Beware when you or any other believer isolate themselves. One of the greatest tragedies we faced with COVID was isolation. We need people. We need face-to-face. Listen, we have FaceTimed a lot with our grandkids. I would rather have a hug any day. You know what it's like to go visit some of you do? Your grandkids and have them run into your arms? It's like, I mean, we've almost adopted the Masons. We pulled up at their house yesterday, you know, and their kids came out. I mean, I love stuff like that. I'm just saying, I've told them, I know you have parents already, but... (laughs) And they know that all they'd get was debt when I die anyway and not an inheritance, so... James, uh, James chapter 5, it's, it's written to the struggling church that's been persecuted and gone through times of great difficulty. And uh, James 5, verses 13 through 15 says, If anyone among you is suffering, then he must pray. If anyone is cheerful, he is to sing praises. If anyone is sick, and the, the word sick there literally means uh, a weakness or to be spiritually defeated in the context, it's because of the persecution. You, you want to go home. If anyone just feels like you can't go on, it says, then he must call the elders of the church and they are to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sin, they will be forgiven. Reflection number five. Even when we're running from a problem instead of running towards God, our gracious God will step in the way. He will step in the way. This is what happened to Elijah and to so many other people of faith. In fact, if you're here this morning, you are here because God stepped in the way. Because you knew where you were headed one day, right? You knew the direction. And you know even today, if God took his hand of mercy and grace off you, you would run in the wrong direction. God's word says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is God running after you. That is God not just stepping in the way, 
but stepping in your place to the cross of Calvary and dying in your place. That's Jesus. And then he says on the cross, it is finished, paid in full. Number six, the journey will always be too great for us. Always. The sooner you learn that, the more victory you will have in your Christian life. I mean, it's okay for you to get up in the morning and say, Lord, I don't know what the day holds, but it's too much for me, I know. And, and by your grace and mercy, I can make it through the day. Let me look to you today and not to my own strength. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10. He said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said, and the word is no is implied here. He says, no, it's not going to leave you. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And number seven, and we're finishing up here. God puts others in our place like Elisha for Elijah to demonstrate his love and his care and to meet our needs. Sometimes you're Elisha and sometimes you're Elijah. But do not take for granted how important your position is in the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, it's an interesting passage of Scripture 10.23 says, let us hold fast our confession without wavering, for he who promises faithful says, look to God. Look to God. Almighty God is behind you. Look to him. But it doesn't end there. It goes on to say, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Elisha and Elijah type of things. Not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. That body life, that those brothers and sisters in Christ, isn't it a wonderful family? I am telling you, you know how many people I've met over the years that will tell me there is nobody in my family that I grew up in that understands me at all. I'm the only Christian. But when I come to this church, I have family. I have people that get where I'm, what I'm going through, that understand and, and pray for me and, and, and the struggles that I go through. It's incredible, isn't it? It's that body life that Jesus loves us to have. Um, I don't know where this came from. I, I got it years ago, but it's Hezekiah 6.14. It's not in your Bibles. Don't look it up. Um, but Hezekiah 6.14 says, I quote, The reason mountain climbers are tied together is to keep the sane ones from going home. Think about that. Mountain climbers are tied together to keep the same ones from going home. Now, I don't know if you've done any mountain climbing at all. I've done just a little bit of it, you know, but <laughs> that's true, right? And I don't know who said it. I don't know when or where, but I've chuckled over it. I've quoted it again twice today. With a mountain of mercy behind me and a mountain of mission ahead of me, I need you. My sister in Christ, my brother in Christ, I need to be tied to you, and you need to be tied to me too. 
We need each other to keep us from bolting, from fleeing in panic, from fleeing and returning to the sanity of unbelief. Wise words, whoever said them, I place them in my Bible. They're my Hezekiah 6.14. Beloved, you need each other desperately. And now, can we say this is the worst times the church has ever faced? Read your Bibles, please, you know. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean we don't need each other, right? To support and encourage each other? To push each other towards the Word of God? To, to run alongside somebody that's struggling and say, you can do this. Now, this is just, I know I'm already over time, I'm sure. I'm afraid of that clock in the back. But I recommended Dan Mason to come preach at one of our village missions conferences this year. Why would I do that? He's younger than my youngest kid. Well, you know, as Marianne warned you, you know, you stop preaching the word and Pastor Mark's going to come punch your lights out, you know. Dan keeps preaching God's word. Sunday in and Sunday out. Well, I, why would I not want? And so if I'm Elijah and he's Elisha, you know, I'm the worn out, he's the young and youthful, energetic. You know, please be praying for Dan. So next Sunday, he's preaching here. And Monday, and there, I don't know if it's like a second honeymoon or whatever, but he and his wife are leaving their kids. Maybe that's probably, it's probably not public information. Anyway... But be, pray for, be praying for Dan because he's going to be in that position of an encourager to our missionaries. I know you'll be praying for him, but uh, I just, I'm looking forward to introducing him down there. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sweet body of believers here, the way they care for and minister to each other. And for us, it's like coming home to see so many familiar faces, but a whole lot of new ones as well. Thank you for the way you work and move. And Lord, take us from here as you've commissioned us. Lord, we can't stay in the cave. We can't stay on the mountain. We have to go into all the world and make disciples. Please empower the people as they move ahead and do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.